Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your host, and Kate, like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik and I'm joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, how's it going? It's going all right. How are you today? I am so tired right now. I'm very tired. Uh, so, But you get to have a lot of fun soon. Yes. Like you have a very full weekend coming. I have a super full weekend. It's, it's pretty crazy. Like usually I, I've been working every weekend. I haven't actually had a day off of work, either teaching or performing or uh, having to get something in on deadline for writing. Um, in over a month. And so I still don't have that cause I still spend all day working, but I have two social engagements tonight and then an all day Star Trek, you know, celebration that I'm speaking at. And then Sunday, a day of, of teaching and then a review that's due. Like, so I, I'm excited to have a social engagement of, of things, which is not my normal, you know, I'm not a social butterfly as it were. Uh, but having two of them on the same night is very strange to me. Is this what, like, having a life is called? Like, is this what it's like for other people? Oh, Kate, I think it's great that you're asking me, the guy who hasn't left his house in three weeks. Oh, but you no, did, because um, you've seen Civil War. Yes, no, I, I, I did go see Civil War last night with a friend of mine, so that's a lie. But, <laughs> I mean, I nev- I've never had two engagements on one night. That's that's insanity. It's crazy talk. So I, I hopefully I will survive just fine. But, no, I spent a lot of time putting together uh, visual aids for for the Star Trek fantasy crew draft that I'm running at Star Trek DePaul. Okay. By the time people are hearing this, it will already have happened. And hopefully, barring technical difficulties, it'll be out in the feed next week. But, um. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun, but very much, I, w- I was so channeling my inner Brian Finch. I was, like, measuring things out, using X-Acto knives, and using colored tapes, and, like, all sorts of fun visual aidness, and lots of lists. I was very Brian Finch, and I was very Jane Villanueva, Villanueva this week. Well, I, I want to know where you got your NZT supply then, Kate. Oh, if only. Maybe it would have been more productive, but uh, but no, it, it, it should be a good time. I'm looking forward to it. Hopefully some of our listeners come out, uh, for, who are in the Chicagoland area, come out to the Star Trek celebration. But because that I'm recording in a different space than I normally would, there's some background noise that uh, is unavo- unavoidable this week, but, so please bear with us. Um, we should be back to our normal setup next week, and uh, that should mean much clearer audio next week. But because of all this craziness, uh, we're going to aim for as edit-free a podcast as possible. Noel, this is a new undertaking for us. We're going to do this in one take. Walk and talk. We're doing it live. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, at the end of the podcast, uh, we'll be talking with Dr. Wes Anthony of, of Musical Notations about the 80s like action procedural, uh, the Equalizer. That was, super, that was super fun. It was. It was a really good conversation with the show that neither of us had seen. So that, yeah. that also made it a, made it more interesting too i've been really enjoying this recent trend of people wanting to talk about shows that either i had never even heard of or i had never made time for um mm-hmm. it, it's been because like it's great talking about shows that we already know and love but it's also neat to get some new ones introduced to us so yeah that that was a lot of fun to talk with west Yes, it was. It was, a, it was a very good conversation. So that's coming at the end of the show, like I said. But now we're going to take a break and come back with our week in comedy and genre. So we'll be right back after this.
This week in comedy and genre, we're going to talk a little bit about the White House Correspondents' Dinner, uh, which feels appropriate for comedy. Um, then we'll talk some Jane the Virgin um, before going over to a person of interest, which had its premiere, BSOD, the Houdini and Doyle pilot on Fox. I'm going to do a quick roundup of the Penny Dreadful premiere, Outlander's La Dame Blanche, uh, and then Game of Thrones Home before we do a DC TV roundup. So the way that'll work is we're going to talk about Legends of Tomorrow, River of Time, The Flash, Rupture, and Arrow Genesis. But we're each going to get just a few minutes to talk, and then we then we'll kind of throw back and forth about the different shows afterwards. So we'll see how how that goes. But first up was the White House Correspondents' Dinner. I, I watched um, I watched Larry Wilmore's. Uh, I guess 20 minutes that he did. I did not watch The President's, but I know you were a fan of The President's, so I guess let's start with um, tell me about how did did President Obama Obama do in his final White House Correspondents' Dinner? Well, I think actually it calls attention to the fact, and I saw a couple of people tweet this as well, um, even though I was about to go into a movie um, when he was doing his bit, was that Obama's really good at the White House press correspondence dinner. He always has been. And it's something that's severely underrated, um, I think increasingly, considering now that the correspondence dinner has become like this big media event, um, really after uh, Colbert showed up, um, after the uh, GOP accidentally invited him to host, and they went, oh, <laughs> that was a mistake. <laughs> that remains one of my favorite misreads of a cultural figure. Yes. Like, in a long, long time. Right. No, it's amazing. And it and it really catapulted the correspondence dinner into, like, this thing that people watch C-SPAN once a year for this. And so Obama has been really, really good at this year in and year out. But this year was basically, like, the epitome of Obama don't care. Um, and he was just, like, doing really solid riffs on everyone. So he got some jabs in at Sanders. There were some good jabs at Hillary. There were some really nice jabs at the GOP, um, particularly like Reince Priebus uh, was there, and he was just like, great job in the GOP nomination process. You guys did a bang-up job, and it's just like, he's just, you have to sit there and take it because it's a roast, basically. And he's just really funny. He's got a really wry delivery, and even the pre-taped segment that he got like John Boehner to participate in while they were watching Toy Story 3, just... It was really, really funny stuff. Um, some of it seemed very scripted from Wilmore's um, writers and tone and perspective, um, particularly the, oh, you know I got to talk about Trump, because he made it sound like he wasn't going to talk about Trump, and then he just laid into Trump with some really solid jokes. Um, but it was it was a really good evening. Um, I thought it was way stronger than Wilmore's um less than great uh 20 minutes uh but tell me what you thought about uh wilmore's 20 minutes i thought that he did um like i thought that it went over to me way better than it went over in the room and yeah no he bombed in the room totally destroyed and i don't know how well he did managing that i think he was a little too um in his in his presentation a little too aware of that and i think part of what makes the Colbert performance so fantastic. I mean, it's, it's just like you watch it now, it's still amazing to watch. It's still a, just a tremendous performance from a comedian. Um, but what makes it, part of what makes it work so well is that he just commits 
completely to it. He never looks back. He never acknowledges that he's supposed to be being funny because he's in character. He can do all of this. And so right. as Wilmore was talking um, and every now and again, you go like, oh, tough room, that kind of a thing. But it shouldn't have been a surprise that they're not laughing because he's being a little too honest for them to actually be like, if he, if he actually expected the room to go take this stuff well, I would be, I would be uh, very curious as to his, um, like what he thought could, was going to happen. Cause it, based on the jokes he was telling, like what else was the room going to do? But, you know, have some, every now and again, a chuckle, a laugh. Um, some people got it and were into it, but most of them, were really just kind of quiet or there was some grumbling or booing. Um, and I'm not surprised. I thought the the jokes themselves, the comedy was, uh, was solid. And I liked that he decided he was going to actually make some critiques of yes. various people. And I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, I think that people saying that he bombed are kind of missing the point of what he was saying. He, I don't, if he wasn't trying to just wow the room because if he was he wouldn't have gone with the 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 topics that he did um i do agree that like the zodiac killer thing was like it did not come back i think he was hoping it was gonna beat it to death and then it would come back around but it, it did not come back around um but in general i was more positive than a lot of other people i just don't know that and this is something I, I see with Wilmore on the nightly show, which I still watch regularly and really enjoy. But every now and again, he's not—he's just not as good with some of his delivery. It's very—it's yeah. very scripted. He's not as great as as making it feel kind of as thrown off. You can—you can tell when he's going back to the notes. You can tell when he's reading, um, in a way that uh, both uh, Colbert and and Stewart were much better at sort of gliding over or Sam B as well on full frontal. Um, so that's sort of where I am with it. No, I think that's, I think that's, a, I think that's a fair read of it. I, I think my problem was, is I ended up watching Obama first um, and then watched Wilmore and was just underwhelmed by, based on Obama's just sheer comedic timing and charisma mm -hmm. as we all have been at one point or another, probably. And so going to Wilmore who felt, I think very stayed sometimes. And while the critiques, I think you're right, were accurate. It just, it's some, sometimes it's just low hanging fruit. Um, because it's just like making fun of CNN at this point just feels really easy. And the Zodiac stuff, I got tired of basically within a week. So I was just, I, I'm so glad Ted Cruz is out of the race so that now we don't get any more Zodiac killer jokes. <laughs> Because I got tired of him really quickly, uh, but no, I I I agree that uh, he just didn't recover well when the jokes started not working. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's um, a really telling element in a comedic performance, like a hosting performance. You can see that with various like Oscar telecasts as well, when uh, or like even just with Chris Rock this last year. When the stuff in the room was not going, they just like stopped going to the reaction shots. You would not know from Rock's delivery. He, right. you know, he committed to the material. And with this one, you could feel sometimes Wilmore kind of turtle a little bit, just come in a little bit sure. um, instead of just doubling. Down. And and the the tone of the comedy kind of switched back and forth too. Of 
like you said, the, the, the more low hanging fruit versus um, the more topical stuff, like this, the comments about drone strikes and about some other other stuff. But he didn't go full Colbert with it either. So it just right. sort of in a middle ground. But again, I think people I think because of that amazing Colbert performance, people expect more out of the White House Correspondents Dinner than most are going to be able to provide. Right. And so uh, I, th- I think he did. I think he did just fine. Um, but it, I could see if people, if you're expecting it to explode your brain, then I could see why that didn't happen. Yeah, and I never expect like the celebrity hosts to really blow my brain. I expect them to come out and do some really solid material. I mean, even Cicely Strong, I think who host who emceed last year. Um, I think I'm almost positive it was Cicely Strong uh, did a really nice job. But I mean, she. It was a very safe set that she did, but it was still a very funny set. And I think that that I'd rather have funny and safe than, like you said, that kind of I'm going to reach for a critique, but then I'm also going to kind of shrink back every now and then when that critique doesn't hit. And I'd rather see funny than kind of backing off from the critique when it's not landing. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Um, But we should actually talk about a comedy show in TV because this... (laughs) This was on TV. This was on TV. It was on, like, C-SPAN or, you know, it it did actually air. Uh, But let's talk a little bit about Jane the Virgin, Chapter 42, this week. Um, I'm just going to get, I mostly really enjoyed this episode, but I got to get one thing out of the way. I just, I really don't like that they had Zoe sleep with Esteban, because I just don't, I don't buy that from her. I buy her, like, acting out in different ways, but that is cruel. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I agree. Um, that and the um, reveal that Aneska is um, can speak English perfectly well mm-hmm. um, were both like things that I just went, oh, guys. Yeah. No. Well, the thing that got me with the Aneska thing is um, what the element. It's a lie. <laughs> well, but it's like she she completely apes the accent and everything, but then she turns the closes the door and she does like the uh, same like adorable. You know, you know. Oh, that rapscallion, as opposed to malevolent, kind of like, like laugh into her hand and like the pot, the body posture in that right. moment is much is like not like oh we need to watch out for her, but more like oh, ooh, what trouble she get into next? That uh, adorable little twin sister we did, we were just finding out about. Like like it's the idea that she's not a bad guy, but then why? is she putting on this accent or I guess, I guess for the idea that maybe it's not, I don't know. I'm not sure what to think about that. Right. And I think the other part that I just ran into was that, um, she clearly can speak English. So why did we have that scene of her going through a, a book, a dictionary to peck out? Yeah. And I just went, Oh, okay, that's fine. I and guess maybe, but no consistency, please. And like to your point with um, Zoe and Esteban, it's just I I like the idea that I mean it could have maybe happened flirty flirty type stuff with the with the sing with the um, voiceover booth and everything, but that it just happened that quickly was an issue for me. Mm-hmm. Well, and and I like the scene we got with them in the booth. Yes. That as soon as like no, we're not together anymore. You know, he's like, oh, okay, and it drops. I w- if they had left it there, that would have worked for me. But the just the way the the tone of it, the performance that we get as she like is all ashamed and she immediately regrets it. It's like, I, I just I I'm disappointed in the show for that. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's a fair thing to be disappointed in with that, especially considering it's coming from such a weird space in which it 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 feels like it reduces a lot of the romantic complications that her not wanting another kid and that being a very mature reason for them to end their relationship and then her being jealous about Dina and it just it felt like a really weird slope that we went on really really quickly and I think that just gets to my point about I would have maybe been happier with it with a bit more buildup, but I don't think that we had enough time for there to be any buildup for that. Yeah. Well, what about the rest of the episode? Any other elements stand out? What did you think about the Mother's Day brunch? Uh, the Mother's Day brunch was fine. I enjoyed the fact that uh, Jane the Virgin figured out a drinking game quicker than we did. <laughs> and uh, so I enjoyed that. I enjoyed, I think my favorite thing about the Mother's Day brunch was the fact that Michael and Raphael have just come to terms with the fact that they're always going to be stuck in this really awkward position. (laughs) And they're just like, yeah, I guess drink is how we're going to deal with this. And I think that's actually pretty funny. Um, So what did you think about the Mother's Day brunch before we move on to, I think, really what was the big, um, the big, the big meaty part of the episode for me anyway, which was Rogelio's smarty pants dinner. Um, I thought it was, I thought it was fine. Um, I thought it worked. I liked that they show Raph having water. I thought that was a neat little touch. Mm -hmm. Um, But, and again, just like drink every time it gets awkward at this brunch is a a fun way to, to, and especially the way they cut through it as more of a montage, I thought worked well and saved us uh, some time and kept the energy up. So I thought, I thought it was nice. And the, the, the super texting, I like when they give Rogelio these like hidden abilities. (laughs) So I thought that was uh, delightful and the Nazi versus NATO. uh, Yeah. Who else has gotten forward momentum in their relationship by mistaking Nazis for NATO. Well, it autocorrect from Jane's phone. It's not It's not Rogelio's fault. He just kept reading it. Yeah, but he should have understood the context of the sentence and not said it before he thought. Yeah, but we also have to remember that, I mean, Rogelio just may not be as aware as he should be. That is true. How did you feel about About, about Nazis, apparently. <laughs> Maybe that Hitler had one good idea. <laughs> but I, I I, think the other thing that I really enjoyed about this, especially was the prep for the dinner. And there was, a, especially like at the tail end of this week, uh, Vulture published that uh, less than super great uh, middle bro- defensive middle brow TV essay. But I think that this that the prep that was necessary that they went through with uh, that Jane and Rogelio went through kind of address that because Rogelio was just like there's so much to discuss about the Kardashians and there is a lot to discuss about the Kardashians we just don't talk about it <laughs> as much as we probably should considering like how we talked about it when OJ uh the OJ Simpson story was on so I th- it's a really nice way to engage that idea that um Dina's friends think that the Kardashians are just really pointless and there's no discussion there when in fact there probably is even if it's not discussing Courtney going through hell with Scott. <laughs> but I I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the fact that Dina saw this as like a really big gesture from him as opposed to oh, you stupid actor. But no, he was like making a real effort and also Rogelio's uh Rogelio's I'm a smart, cultivated intellectual glasses. So hot. 
just the hottest glasses, fake glasses ever. Yeah, the the look and everything was yeah. was really great. It's like I even wore my glasses and like the the fact that he adopted an entire costume is so Rogelio and it worked really well. I also like the runner of him not knowing original literary sources but knowing the movie the film yes. remake. So you want a Pygmalion situation? No, I was thinking more of a My Fair Lady. And he's like, <laughs> yes, thank you. I mean, easiest joke in the world to make in that situation. But because of the delivery, mm-hmm. it's so funny. And yep. also, can we just talk about the way Camille said Moby? <laughs> like, Moby? And it's just like, yes! Or confused, um... Tahin, uh... Tahi, um... Tanhesi coats? Yes. Um, I support all kinds of jackets. <laughs> oh, just, it was times. really solid stuff that they had with Rogelio this week that... I felt made him look endearingly oblivious as opposed to just oblivious. And I like endearingly oblivious as opposed to just oblivious. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Well, on that note, endearingly oblivious, uh, what wins your week in comedy? We both watched many other comedies. We just yes. don't really have much to say about them. Right. Um, so so what wins it for you? Uh, I'll give it to Obama for his last uh, White House press correspondence speech. It was a really good set of jokes and... Uh, did a mic drop i mean mm-hmm. what what more do you want um what about you what won your week i'm gonna give it to veep again uh, okay. my review is up at the av club and the it was a little slower this week it was uh, not they didn't move forward with the momentum i thought they were going to after the premiere but there's just so many funny lines it's like every time that i watch veep which when you're reviewing it is a lot of times because they talk really fast so you have to keep rewinding scenes i find something else to enjoy and i get just a huge kick out of a different supporting performance um, and a different dynamic in, in a given episode. So the density of that show, even you know at a slower pace or at a uh, uh, taking a slightly different approach, maybe this week than I would have liked, uh, is it just it bears repeating. Veep is a very very funny show. So uh, tip of the hat to Nevada. Ad not odd. It's a, been a runner so far this season it's 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 pretty delightful um now we're gonna move on to our week in genre we kick things off with uh person of interest which had a season premiere bsod um remind us noel if you will how are you on person of interest how, how invested are you in the show and how uh, curious are you about the season and what did you think of the premiere uh i'm pretty invested like i said uh a while back i marathoned um seasons three and four after they dropped on netflix really really quickly so i could get caught up because like everyone else i thought season five was gonna be like way earlier than this uh otherwise i would have paced myself a little bit and so i'm pretty invested in seeing how this all plays out for someone who basically came to the show in the past five six months uh so not a lot of like i haven't put in a lot of time as much as a lot of other people have but i'm interested to see how it plays out as for BSOD, it was very much a we need to get everything to a point where we can continue with this storyline. So we're going to make a supercomputer out of PlayStation 3 video game consoles uh, so that we can have our machine and ready to fight the other machine. And that's what we're going to do this episode. And that was fine. Uh, I could do... I'm pretty much done with Harold having guilt about the machine and flashbacks to that sort of stuff. Uh, I feel like even though they've only done four full broadcast seasons and are now doing a truncated final season, I get it. I understand. 
I do not need any more scenes of Michael Emerson staring at a computer screen and the computer talking back to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get it. I'm do. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. So it was a, it was a good episode. Uh, I again, I just kind of like the ludicrous nature of do, using a bunch of PlayStation threes to build a supercomputer. That just tickled me, and I'm trying to figure out how much Sony played paid for that product placement. Uh, but yeah, so no, it was a fine episode. I'm looking forward to seeing how things continue from here. And I'm the most I'm hoping for is that given that it's a 13 episode season, that Amy Amy Acker just doesn't disappear. Because she sometimes just disappears for a few episodes because she's off on some mission for the machine. Uh, so I'm hoping that that isn't the case, considering that they only have uh, a short season this season to go forth and wrap things up. Uh, you watch this, right? Uh, and you're like not as you if I'm recalling correctly, you're not like as deeply interested in this show as a lot of people are. Right. Yeah. I feel yeah. like I'm the person uh, in our critical community who is like, oh, it's back. Okay. Yeah. Um, and this premiere did not really help with that. Sure. Outside I, I of, wouldn't think it would. Yeah, outside <laughs> of, um, obviously, anybody who's listened to the Televerse for any amount of time will know I love Amy Acker. She's delightful. Right. Um, and so she's great. But, um, but yeah, when you, like, when you talk about Harold, I'm, I'm glad to hear it's not just me. Because, you know, you're, you're a bigger fan of the show than I am. You're more on board, much more on board, I would say, than I am. But I was watching this going, like, wait, didn't, I swear I've already seen all of this. Everything yeah. we're seeing here, we've already, it's like, it like, yay, Carrie Preston gets to come back on. Because she's fabulous. And any paycheck to Carrie Preston, thumbs up. Plus, it's just kind of great to see her and, uh, you know, her and her real-life spouse act opposite each other. I always enjoy when that happens. But, um, and when both people are good, which they both are. But, um, but yeah, I'm just like... I've already invested in Michael Emerson's performance in this scene, and I've already had that experience and watched that, and why are we doing it again? I was like, for a moment, I thought I had been taking crazy pills. I was like, but, but we didn't already... We Why? And then, so I'm glad to hear that it's not just me. Um, the, the, the drama of how are they going to be able to decompose to, to decompress the machine and the space storage and everything. I thought that worked pretty well. It actually is an interesting connection to The 100 this week, which had a, yes. a bit of that same drama. Way more invested here than I was in that um, <laughs> there. But um, but no, I just it pretty much kept things at the same place for me that they have been. So I will probably continue to watch just because everybody else is super excited about it. And that way I can sort of proxy their excitement. But sure. But no, um, I was hoping just it would come back and I would be like, yes, now I finally see it. I, I see, I've seen the light. Yay. Um, but it, that didn't really happen for me. No, and I, I can understand that. I think this was a very like mid-level type of episode for them that, like I said, was very much about reestablishing the show's parameters so that they could tell this really tight story that they're going to tell to wrap, wrap things up. I think they wanted to be able to get new people in with this. Yeah. Even, why would you want to suck new people in in your last, like... Yeah. Last season, when CBS, after this week, starts burning off the show, basically, by airing two episodes a week. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But they did. Um, and yet, I still had more fun with this one than I did with the Houdini and Doyle pilot <laughs> on Fox. Which isn't a terrible show or anything it's just the like it's so painfully piloty when they're standing there when houdini and doyle are standing there for some reason talking with a cop because there's some they know a guy 
like there was a very hand wavy explanation for why they were at Scotland Yard at all. But just like, I believe this. Aha, well, I think you're a fool and I believe the opposite. We are going to butt heads on this topic. It's like they could not have been more just down the line. Let's establish a difference of opinion around which we will fuel our show. Right. And I think that this and this is one of these shows where Fox probably got the song for got this show for a song since it's a three country co-production. Mm-hmm. And it's almost done airing in the UK. <laughs> okay. Yes. It's like practically done. It's airing on ITV over in the UK. And it's airing on Global in Canada. And it's airing on Fox here. And all three countries are have like chipped in money for this. So this was really cheap for everyone involved. And it's just... You say really piloty, and I just say really just boring i mean this is another example of fox wanting to do yet another mismatched buddy cop thing and they just went who can what can we do that's different how about we get a magician and a writer who writes detective stories eureka and it's no i mean yes there's some no eureka <laughs> no eureka i mean there's some basis in fact because houdini and doyle were in fact friends in real life um but the show just has very little energy um and it's just weird like houdini's carrying around ten thousand dollars in the early 1900s no it's like are you trying to make us not like him well not even that it's just like why who has ten thousand dollars to carry around houdini did (laughs) but still yeah and they're making ten thousand dollar bets yeah I like I, I could buy that stuff based on the little I know about those historical figures. Maybe it's just all hearsay. Maybe so maybe it's not that. For me it was like the idea of, you know what will refresh this whole cop not a cop TM uh to Bastard Machine on that one. Uh but let's make it be not a cop, not a cop. With a and, put upon and put upon female cop. You know, it's like who no one respects. Who no one respects and she's gotta struggle against the patriarchy. But it's like we know because of the time period she's not gonna win in that struggle or they're going to just go like diverge from all reality with that, which could happen. But right. it's just it's just not interesting and like it's just so so in love with its setting. And yes. uh, and with it's like all all the tricks around it that it just, just forgot to actually be compelling. Yeah, no, I think that's really accurate, and I think it's just very stagey. As it's not stagey, it's just very on the nose. Sometimes it's just like Houdini literally says, "And I've done some investigating of my own," and it's just like, "Oh no, just shut it down. <laughs> Let's rewrite this a little bit." Yeah. So that a character does not come into a scene to function as a conversation transition to, I've done some investigating of my own. Mm-hmm. No. I, though I do think that uh, the the line of the week in that vein does go to Legends of Tomorrow for we're, we're alike, you and I, which I couldn't believe when they actually said, like, more on that later when we get there, but... I, there's some clunkers this week. Yeah, Legends of... Yeah, we'll get there, because, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. yeah, Houdini and Doyle, kind of a bomb. But, um, speaking of, you know, 
drawing on the past and doing supernatural stuff. Tell me about the Penny Dreadful premiere. Penny Dreadful premiere, this is also a show that I do not embrace the way that others do, but I am really interested in certain corners of it. There are certain, because there's so many different characters, there are certain areas in, in the past couple seasons that I've been more invested in and certain areas where I just would just, the Kate edit would just cut them out. So I just, I don't care about Frankenstein's monster. I am. Is he still around? I figured he would yeah. have died at some point. I've only watched the first season. No, he's so, still there. They, yeah. they gave him they give him a neat first scene, mm-hmm. um, neat but like ghoulish sort of or not ghoulish. It's it's kind of hard to describe without just saying what happens. It's like you know a tough first scene, I guess. Okay. Um, but I just don't care about that character, and I'm not particularly connected with the performance, though I enjoy that actor, um, and I've liked him in many other projects, but um, there's significant swaths of the show that I don't care about. But then there are swaths of the show that I really do, so I'm very invested in all the Evan Chandler stuff. Um, I think Josh Hartnett has been really great on the show, and I look forward to what they give him to do now that he's back at home. I like this idea of going out to America and bringing several of the characters to just such a completely different setting. I think that that will help re-energize and rejuvenate the show. They brought in Patti LuPone to be a regular character this season, um, a descendant of her previous character, one-off character in her amazing guest appearance last year um, from from Penny Dreadful. So that's that's really interesting, and or she's fantastic and works really well with the show and works really well specifically with Ava Green, who she's going to have, it seems like, most of her scenes with. So there's a lot of really promising stuff there. I'm less invested in Vanessa or Eva Green's performance than most people are, but this idea, like, she seems well-suited and the character does to connecting in with Dracula the way that they're going to do. I mean, that just feels... fits tonally so um i I think they could uh have a lot of fun with that and and they got around to having a little bit of uh light and brightness in this episode with her in when she goes to the natural history museum and and meets someone else who likes who enjoys animals and enjoys nature and thinks people should like look around and actually see all the amazing things around around them and around us uh, more often, which connects, you know, which she, she really connects to that that idea. So it helps that we didn't have any Dorian Gray, we didn't have any Brona, and I think that, you know, that I'm just not, again, I'm not interested in that part of the show. So for me, this is a very hit and miss kind of series because the parts of the show that I am invested in because of how I watch television as like a character driven and relationship driven medium, you know, lots of people have different ways that they watch television that's usually what I'm keying into um the parts of the show where I do key into the characters and the performances I really enjoy and the parts that I don't I kind of want to fast forward through even though I don't but I kind of want to but I don't um uh, <laughs> so that's basically where I'm at with this this premiere and uh, I think there's a lot of promise um we'll see if they are able to incorporate things I like I don't like they don't need them to bring in Dr. Hyde or, or sorry Dr. Jekyll uh Mr. Hyde Dr. Jekyll um yeah. I like that if they're going to bring him in, he's a person of color. That's neat. Um, oh, that is neat. Yeah, he's he's uh, I, of Indian descent, I believe. I don't know if he is Indian or if he is his parents are Indian and he grew up in in England. I'm not quite sure. He's he's buddies with Dr. Frankenstein. They were you know, friends at school. We find out. So, um, but it's like, I, do we need that and Dracula and Native American mysticism and like it's a lot. But, you know, I'm sure that they will have fun with it, as, as only Penny Dreadful can. Um, a slightly different note is this week's episode of Outlander, which uh, La Dame Blanche, which was good. You know, it was a really strong episode. They, they're doing a lot of really great, compelling stuff. Um, but they, 
I was just as I was really enjoying how no one had been raped this season, they had a woman get raped this in this episode. Um, and they handle that about as well as you can. They're very focused on her rather than anybody else's reactions. And um, she gets saved basically by Claire. Um, and Claire is able to help her rather than like some strapping person comes along, uh, which is appreciated. Um, and there's a sense that there will be vengeance. But um, yeah, it's just, it's tough. You know, like we're still, I'm still processing everything that went down with Jamie. And so it, I think we could have gone longer without somebody getting raped, personally. I love that this is the kind of conversation, Noel, that uh, I'm having with my television right now. Uh, but yeah, so that's where I'm at with, with Outlander. Hopefully they will handle it well. But it's just like, we already know who Mary, this character who was raped, is going to end up married to. And that's going to be f***ing terrible. So I uh, I would have liked if we could have waited a little longer and let her be a little happier because they like give her um, a love interest and she's so over the moon and excited about it and then like literally like the next scene she's getting raped. Um, so it would have been nice if we could have had a little more sunshine before we had what is going to be a dark future for her. So yeah, it's too bad. Uh, as for Game of Thrones, people asked that I mention it, so I will mention this week's episode. Uh, Kate, home. I, I, Kate, no, don't don't tell me. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. I haven't watched it yet. I don't want to know whether or not Jon Snow's alive or not. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. <laughs> oh, yeah. wait, he's alive? I didn't... I had no idea. How is that possible? Yeah. Oh, my God. It's yeah. such a shock. Sorry. Okay, go on. No, that's about <laughs> That's about it. That's, that's, that's what I got. Um... <laughs> You kind of encapsulated it all right there. Wait, uh, so, but tell me how Bran turned 17 under that tree. <laughs> uh, well, we don't know how much time has quite happened in magic. But I do like the okay. way that they're bringing in um, flashbacks. I think that works well. Uh, that's, that's a good call. Very glad to have his corner of the show back. Nice to get a name for Hodor. For Hodor uh, though I dread what could have happened to cause him to no longer speak and only say the word Hodor. It probably mm-hmm. was a, not, a somewhat traumatizing experience that they're going to love showing us in graphic detail. Um, so, yeah, I just, I'm just i about the same place with Game of Thrones. So the thing that we all knew was going to happen happened. Um, did not need them to play all these media games all summer. God, but, all summer. Yeah. And still, like, right up to the... Pr- right up to the episode yeah it just like, we're have a little bit more respect for your audience especially when there's like an epic novel series that's tied into it that clear like if you know anything about narrative structure there's no way this character can actually die it ruins the narrative through line of five or six books um so therefore that can't be a thing that's not going to be undone so have a little bit more respect for your audience but anyways uh that that's a maybe a conversation for another time i i would appreciate if any of our listeners was surprised or thought that that worked really well um i mean the stuff that they gave melisandre to do around like making it more about her and her um insecurity and her abilities and her future and everything like that like that's about as good as you're gonna do with that storyline. So like they did a good job to key into her instead of making it all about oh, will he live. Um, but that's about all I can really say positive for that. So um, let's move on to our DC 
uh, Triumvirate here, Legends of Tomorrow, River of Time, The Flash, Rupture, and Arrow, Genesis. We're timing ourselves with this one, listeners. Yes. Noel, you're up first. Uh, okay. You have a max of three minutes to tell okay. us where you're at with these three shows right now. Okay, are you going to time me? I'm timing you. Ready? Go. Okay, uh, so, right. So, Flash um, continued this idea that Barry has a moral quandary between whether or not he wants to get his powers back or at the risk of exposing uh, the city to another particle accelerator burst. And because of all his hemming and hawing, Zoom got to kill a bunch of cops and keep Caitlin hostage, which made Barry look like a schmuck. Um, <laughs> was basically my take on Barry being conflicted about all of this stuff, was that, Barry, your indecision and bringing Henry back just didn't do anything really interesting, and Zoom just got to kill a bunch more people. So kudos. Kudos on that. Uh, Barry's not dead. Uh, this He's going to off to some alt dimension, probably Speed Force relation. This is my comic book knowledge speaking. Uh, but I really hope that The Flash can pull something interesting out in these last couple of episodes because this run-up to the finale has been not that great. Uh, Arrow this week was dumb, but really fun. I enjoyed uh, Thea figuring out that she was in the Truman Show Apocalypse Edition dome bunker. Uh, I thought that was really, really great for Thea. But I also enjoyed the fact that Damien Dark is just continuing to be ridiculous and maniacal, and I love all that stuff. I loved the immortal shaman poker blackjack player who's just amused by all these mortals. I enjoyed the fact that Oliver's big way of learning magic is to almost die. And uh, I just, it was silly and funny and stupid, and I enjoyed that. It was just at odds with the whole Diggle's going to a very dark place now. Uh, by killing his brother and dealing with Laurel, the guilt over Laura's death. And it feels at odds tonally with what the show is doing really well and what the show thinks it does really well. And I'm having issues balancing all that. Uh, so Legends of Tomorrow, I didn't get to review River of Time because I went to go see Civil War instead. And I made the correct decision uh, because uh, Vandal Savage got to do a bunch of mind games with the crew on the Wave Rider. Except for the fact that everyone was aware of the fact that he was playing mind, mind games with them. And then they played right into his hands anyway. And she's like, guys, you just said... <laughs> That you're aware that he's doing this to his face, and yet, <laughs> you're going to be idiots anyway. Ray, you're going to let yourself get goaded into getting into a fist fight with an immortal that's been alive for centuries, and he's going to kick your ass so he can escape, and yada yada yada. It turns out that the Time Masters are in cahoots with Vandal, and it's just like, well, of course he is. He has a time machine. Oh, really? Okay, great. All right, fine. Whatever, guys. Let's, let's just wrap this up and maybe you guys can figure yourselves out between the break and whatever you want to do with season two. And maybe I came in under, Kate. What was my time? You're just under two minutes and like, so like two minutes, like 20 seconds, 15, 20 seconds. So yeah, you're under. Yeah. yeah. Go me. All right. Go so you. what did you, what did I, and I will start your time now. Okay, I'm going to go with Legends of Tomorrow first. Okay. And uh, the way that they are just so committed to ensuring uh, the, that by the end of the series everything is reset uh, is, I guess, to be expected. But um, as completely not connected as I am to the Kendra and Ray uh, love story, which has actually succeeded in making Ray less entertaining and less fun than ever. So congratulations, guys. Um, the, the, the way that they... I guess it just comes back to, again, 
poor casting for both Carter, definitely for Carter, um, but definitely, but I would say also Kendra. I mean, she's, I don't think it's a problem of her, but just the chemistry that needs to be there between those two. And certainly if they're going to build much of their season around a Kendra and Ray relationship needs to be there between those two is completely non-existent. So I don't care. It's like, oh no, but I love you and we will get married. And now we've lost that. It's like, I could actually buy the connection with Felicity and Ray somewhat. I thought it was very clumsily added back in here to remind you in case you forgot. But I could I could buy into that relationship because they shared that like nerd side of themselves and they understood each other on that level. There's never been a part of Kendra or Ray that I see connecting other than they're both nice and pretty. Um, so I just they've put so much of their season into this and the fact that they can't, didn't look at the dailies and see that it wasn't going to work is very confusing to me um, they also seem to want to make sure that at the end of the show they can have Ray go back over to Arrow and still be a viable love interest I guess for Felicity now that she and Ollie are broken up until the end of the season when they get back together so that he can feel love and to be dark I don't know um, that I guess takes me to Arrow um, Arrow, I, I again, I, I would agree with you. I thought it was a solid but not great episode. Um, I really like that Thea figured out almost immediately that, that something was wrong. Um, I like that finally we have resolution about the Diggles and we know that that storyline is over for now um, unless there's, you know, who, who's going to stay dead on the show? You, you never know. But that I like that there was resolution to that. But the rest of the episode, again, which just felt pretty continue to move the plot along till we get to our the end of our season the end of our episode order and that takes me to the flash because again this feels like uh, just kind of filling time we took away the flash's abilities to help us fill out a few more episodes before we get to our season finale at least with this we know how wally and jesse are going to get their super speed i'm assuming that's what's going to happen to them seeing as both characters have our speedsters in the comics um that might be fun moving forward but on the whole i just again I, i'm feeling so much of filling time on all three of these shows that it's really hard to be invested though that does make for really great uh viewing when you're making lots and lots of visual aids Noel if you're like if you're taping around the corners of three by four squares for five hours in a day that this is the perfect kind of television for that and you you finished like right on time you used all the time there we go. There you go. That's what happens when you monologue too long about Kendra and Ray. Everybody's the least <laughs> interesting. I would say everyone's the least interesting couple, but there's also Carter and Kendra, which, you know, he's back. So now we get to be uh, treated to that dynamic for the last few episodes. Yeah, I'm, I'm not looking forward to that. I'm, I'm even less looking forward because in the preview for the next episode of Legends of Tomorrow, it looks like Cold and Sarah are kissing. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. Yeah, they've got yeah. good chemistry, but they both have good chemistry with everyone, so. Yeah, and also they've made, I mean, Sarah's pretty much been played, like, sexually fluid, which I think is great. Mm -hmm. But the show has played her very much more lesbian than sexually fluid. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, well, I guess, I mean, that's, that's fine. It would be but, nice if the, you saw a show actually address um, bisexuality as not necessarily a they like everyone, but like usually she she tends to be romantically and and sexually interested in women. But there are you know sometimes yeah. she is that with men as well. Like that's that is a much more accurate depiction of a bisexuality than who's the new guest star? What would the gender be? Doesn't matter. They're hooking up with our bi lead. Of right. Course, no, that's, that's a really good point. <laughs> there are very few of those on television, but still. <laughs> yeah. 
So, I don't know, but I agree with everything else that you said about Arrow and Flash as well. Uh, And it's weird that Legends feels like it's filling time, considering it had only 16 episodes, and it feels like it's filling time. Yeah. Well, as soon as they're like, we're going to go to the tournament, I was like, well, they're going to be in cahoots. Because we got two more episodes, so. And not only are they going to, not only is it because it's two more episodes, but you you cast Martin Donovan mm-hmm. as our representative of the Time Masters, and that's all Martin Donovan does is play really shady guys, <laughs> and he does it really well. But I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, what wins your week in genre, Noel? Houdini. No, it's not Houdini and Doyle. Um, <laughs> Um, I'm going to give it to Arrow this week, just be- if only just because of Thea being like, I'm on the fucking Truman show, aren't I? And also, <laughs> I really enjoyed her running into the hologram wall and bouncing off of it. <laughs> it, was un- it was unintentionally funny because it was a very serious moment, but I really enjoyed just the visual of that and also just her figuring it out. So I'll give it to Arrow plus the rest of the stuff that was in the episode that was all really good, even if tonally kind of dissonant. Uh, what won your week this week? I'm going to give it uh, to Orphan Black okay. just because the, I, the, I liked most of Outlander better and parts of Penny and Dreadful better. But for both of those, there were like little elements of it that really soured me on at least parts of the show so uh so sneaking in there with the win this week will be a very consistent uh orphan black now we'll take a break and come back with our weekend drama This week in drama, I'm going to talk a little bit, uh, do a little bit of a roundup here with a pilot catch-up for Containment, Game of Silence, and Vinyl. That's right. That's right, gentle listeners. I watched the two-part Vinyl pilot for you. Though really, let's be honest, it's for my own neuroses, and I'm going to talk about it. Uh, Then I'll talk a little bit about the Americans, The Magic of David Copperfield 5, The Statue of Liberty Disappears, and then we'll both talk um, some Elementary, The Invisible Hand, Night Manager, Episode 3, very creatively titled, as they often do over there in the UK, and then The Path, Refugees, and we'll round things out with Underground, Black and Blue. So first up, um, because I frankly ran out of new episodes to catch up with for this week on my DVR, and because especially the vinyl pilot had just been staring at me at the DVR saying, like, you know you have to watch me. You said you would. Uh, I, I was part of my... I'm shaking my head at you right now. Yeah, I know. I'm... Yeah. It's... I don't know what to do. I like that, This is something I should address and, you know, maybe I can go go see Patty Lapone in Penny Dreadful and she can help me work through these neuroses. But anyway, so I, I it's like, let's just swallow the pill and, you know, actually watch these pilots that uh, I haven't had time to catch up with until this week. Um, so for containment, uh, I agree with pretty much everything you were saying about it in our preview. Um, I think it's fine 
but um and and i'm i don't have that connection to the the location that you have yeah. so that that kind of removes some of the flavor for me um sure. but yeah i mean i guess the cutting back and forth between the different time periods um at least in the pilot is effective but there's something about those crowd scenes I think has to do with the level of the audio mix and there's certain shows that just can't seem to get this right but when you have it's supposed to be different voices kind of overlapping each other in a chaotic scene and then you'll have someone who's just speaking with perfect diction please help my daughter you know like that, that rises above or like when it's supposed to be commenters on the like the rate people calling into a radio show or something like that where all of a sudden one voice is just way more distinct than everything else and it really takes me out of scenes like chaotic scenes like the beginning of the of the containment pilot so uh i was just not super connected to it um and in a, an era of peak tv i have no reason to make time for it which is probably why you haven't kept up with it noel and why nobody that i know is talking about it but i thought it was fine if you're looking for that kind of a show um does that sound about right from what you remember yes absolutely it just i i until you told me about it, I just went, oh, okay, right, no, we're, you we're, you watch this, it's great. I, I haven't watched it since the premiere. <laughs> um, the next one here in my pilot catch-up is Game of Silence on NBC, which has some actors I really enjoy. Michael uh, Raymond James is one of them. Um, and some that I don't really get why they keep getting leading pilot roles but you know whatever they're fine um this is the the four friends who had a terrible experience one summer and then 25 years later something happens that meshes brings it all back up and they get back in touch and you know the darkness we can't outrun from our childhoods or whatever um the the trouble i'm having with this one uh and why i'm not gonna again why i don't think people have made time for it at least in our circles and why i doubt i will actually i know that i won't is this all the whole season is fueled by a really terrible experience they have in juvie where basically the the their juvie gets like run over there's a riot in their juvenile detention center when they they accidentally kill someone in a car crash and they go to juvie for nine months Uh, or they don't kill them they injure them whatever they go to juvie and there's things escalate to the point where it's implied that they get like sexually assaulted and certainly there's there's kids running everywhere there's like fires you know there's like it's chaos and the the adults all leave because they they aren't they leave them there being like you know tortured and terribleness it's like what juvenile detention center is this where four kids who like steal a car to stop a drunk lady from driving it um accidentally injure but do not kill someone and end up in like the the maximum like the alcatraz like the worst possible of all kids are here and they like take over like i just can't get past that so i wasn't going to invest in the rest of the show and there's also some really unfortunate voiceover too and it's just like i have a hard enough time buying into it was the best summer ever until it wasn't um so (laughs) You know, I, that that setup is not going to entice me anyways. Um, and then add in these other elements and I just, yeah, this one's a one and done for me. Uh, and you didn't watch it, right? No, no. Good gosh, call. No. Good yeah. call. I mean, it's like there are worse pilots. There are a lot of worse pilots that I've seen. But, yeah, it's not interesting to me. Whereas the vinyl pilot actively irritated me to the point where I wanted to stop it 10 minutes in. But then I was like, Kate. You've, this has been hanging over you for months. Just 
Just finish, like, finish watching it. You Just turn it off, Kate. Just, just you're, turn it you're off. You're doing arts and crafts anyways, you know. You have it in the background. But it's it's so insufferable. It's so bad. It's, like, it was making me dislike uh, Goodfellas just because it is such a obvious, like, draw like it draws from that so clearly it's the the annoying voice like the 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 voiceover from like the smug um future uh middle-aged rich guy who's has done illegal things and has gotten away with it you know like it's like and telling you like showing you the ropes of his life it's like basically everything that people were saying about how they really, really didn't like it. And by people, I mean, like, uh, was it like Mo Ryan and Emily Nussbaum and lots of other very smart ladies and some men too. Just cosign all of that. I thought it was terrible. It gets, the pilot actually gets better as it goes along, but the beginning is so insufferable <laughs> that I just, I'm, I'm so out. Like when Ray Romano shows up and is a significant part of your pilot and gets a lot of scenes and that does nothing to help you then you know you have a problem because he's amazing. And this whole cast is very, very good. But like in other projects with better writing and with less tired uh, talking points and themes, like nobody needed this story to be told. And, and that's, you know, I say that I don't have a connection to the 70s music scene that I think a lot of people may, might have. And so I can't connect to it on that level. And while I am a musician, I'm old dead German guys from like the 15 through 1900s, you know, oh, and, and since then, obviously, into current modern music uh, as well. But like, I this is not my musical scene, so I, I can't connect to it. I'm like, the, oh, look, it's, Ze it's Zeppelin. It's a young Zeppelin. Yay. It's like, I don't I don't care. And so, therefore, I'm not going to invest in it. And and it's just, it's again, it's stuff we've all seen a million times. I, I'm just going to stop there because everything I'm going to say about vinyl, people have already heard about vinyl back when it premiered at the beginning of the year. I, I like, I just, I guess they, there's so many shiny names associated with vinyl. That's why I got a second season. But from, like, I tweeted about it, about how I just, like, 10 minutes in, I was like, I already hate this show. Um, and from everybody that I heard from, it does not get better over the course of its entire first season um the tone of it and the approach so i really really am not gonna watch anymore remind me Noel, did you watch the pilot no good good job thumbs up for not wasting your time on that uh, i cannot imagine a situation in which i would have watched it if i wasn't stuck in my living room cutting out small pieces of paper and gluing them to stuff <laughs> um but yeah uh, that band-aid is ripped off i enjoy i look forward to never watching any vinyl ever again However, I did love The Americans, The Magic of David Copperfield 5, The Statue of Liberty Disappears. Uh, again, I'm not going to say much about this because I don't want to just monologue and talk, you know, Chris Farley show, the show about how amazing it is and how great the performers are and how great the writing is and how great the direction is and how human it is and all of that stuff. But people already know that I think about The Americans. It continues to be tremendous television. Uh, what I will say about this episode is I love the way that this show has such a profound series memory and so they bring up Gregory who hasn't come up in probably two or three seasons um, The and, and like they bring up their, their season one like split and, and again in, they, they're bringing up relationship dynamics that are crucial to who these people are that have remained under the surface for, for seasons and the, the show's like respect of their characters and knowledge of that and you, it's evident that the actors have it and the writers have it and the the directors who are there a lot seems like they have it as well or at least somebody fills them in 
but it's tremendous and um the the notion of the 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 pair getting a vacation or as much as a vacation as they're gonna ever have uh, is an interesting way to jump forward some time so at the end of the episode we jumped forward seven months i think that was a really good call i think they needed some space from the different storylines and the only way they were going to get that with with the only space they were the only way they were going to get that space was to do a time jump so i'm very glad that they did so um yeah people were losing their minds about this episode online um and i'm gonna co-sign pretty much anything if you read a review that was glowing about the americans i probably agree with all of it i'm really super on board with the show still even if i don't spend a lot of time talking at at you about it noel because i know that you'll just go like "Uh uh-huh not for me (laughs) yes but i'm very happy that People are enjoying it, as I've always said. And so that makes me happy. So I'm good. I'm good. Okay, glad to hear it. How about uh, Elementary? How'd you feel about this one, The Invisible Hand? Like, can we just pause a moment and say, this is episode 23. There are more episodes coming. Well, there's a- one more episode. There's one more, but still, 24 episodes a season. Like, 22 is a lot at this point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's been a lot, and I feel like I've kind of, like, lost the thread this season a little bit, uh, which is maybe the show's fault, it's maybe my fault, uh, it's probably my fault. Uh, so, I, yeah, I've just kind of lost the thread, I've lost a lot of interest in the whole search for Moreland's killer, or would-have-been killer type of thing, and so I just, I kind of stopped being really deeply invested, especially as they shifted away from... Sherlock's um, addiction storyline that was so much of a driver last season and then was part of the premiere that I really enjoyed. And that steady that steady shift to this part of their lives, I just stopped being super, super interested in. And I was almost immediately, like the episode immediately went, oh, right, I know we teased you about Moriarty being behind all of this last week. Uh, yeah, no, we're just gonna dash that hope. Sorry, I mean, she's she's still on Game of Thrones, guys. What do you want us to do? <laughs> and I just went... And then they bought out Tony Curran. And I was okay again as Professor Vickner, who has assumed control of Moriarty's organization and was the father of her child that we met in season two? That sounds right. I want to say. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. I don't think it was last season. And so... That was actually a really nice little bit, and I like this idea that Joan and Sherlock are basically off-limits. Like, only Moriarty gets to play with them. And I really kind of enjoy that idea. So, like, Vickner, as much as he would maybe like to go after them for whatever reason, if they get in his way, they kind of, he kind of can't. And I kind of, I like that idea a lot. Uh, but the rest of the episode was fine. I'm glad that we're pretty sure that Moreland's really not up to anything and that he's just a victim in all of this, even if he is kind of a jerk. But yeah, it's it's good. It's just not as really compelling as last season was around this time. So them ending with a cliffhanger of a bomb in their brownstone? Meh. How how did you feel about uh, this episode? Well, I'm not worried about them. Yeah, no, say. why would you be? Yeah, and and and, cause, and why would you blow up that set? Because it's right. gorgeous. Like, they're not going to do better than that set. For And it would be very strange if they blew up the house and they 
got a new brownstone because uh, obviously Moreland could easily just buy them a new one. Um, if he doesn't already have like eighty, yeah, exactly. So like he probably the, owns half of Park Slope. Let's be honest. Yeah, it's not like the brownstone was getting kind of stayed. Like they, there's so much that they can do to refresh that um, because because they're constantly doing different experiments. I should say they Sherlock is constantly doing lots of different experiments and things. Like so, it's easy for them to keep the brownstone fresh without needing to like change location. So I'm not. I'm not concerned. Um, but, uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. There's, this season, the arc of it is nowhere near as compelling as what was happening last season. And, like, to the point where I forget, like, I had to actually look at the episode number to be like, oh, no, this is the second to last episode of the season because I haven't felt any forward progress or momentum build. There's been none as far as I'm concerned. So this feels very much like a re- regrouping, rebuilding season, um, which is, you know, fine, I guess. It's a little underwhelming, but when you're coming off such an intense season last year, I think that maybe makes sense. And then wanting to introduce uh, John Noble as Moreland and have him as more of a stable presence on the show rather than just there for a few episodes arc, you know, that, that works. Unless they were going to have him vie against Sherlock, which could be interesting for a few episodes but not as rewarding as maybe seeing him pop in and out um there wasn't going to be a way that they were going to i think include him without it leading to somewhere like that where he had to go to prison you know or, or like he had to leave like if they want Moreland to be a recurring figure on the show i think having him be the victim of something while still a negative presence maybe or antagonistic presence shall we say um was about the only way that they were going to go i agree turning Curran uh Curran is is fabulous a lot of fun um and i think he's a good choice here of course i always go to him as um vincent van gogh in doctor who's vincent and the doctor one of my favorite episodes um, in recent Doctor Who, uh, he was wonderful there, and I think he's got a lot of potential here. Bring, tying in Moriarty in a way makes sense and is adds extra levels of stakes to it. I really appreciated a couple episodes ago where they talked, they brought down Moriarty's painting and did the, and maybe it was in last week that had he it was, was comparing this to, week's episode where he's comparing the brushstrokes. Yeah, it was it was this week's. Episode. Oh, it was this week's. Episode. This is what happens when I catch up with a bunch all in a row. They blur in my mind. Um, so I like that kind of detail. I is something I, I really appreciate. And um, uh, yeah, it's it's like a it's a solid two parter, but it doesn't feel to me like a season finale. So I, I you know this is going to be one that I watch. I watch it pretty much every week, or if I get behind, I look forward to catching back up, like I did this week with the show. Um, but this season, it's just going to, when it's done, it'll be like, okay, that's done. And then maybe I'll get reinvested next year. I think having a little space, um, there are not many storylines they're going to be able to do that are going to be as compelling as uh, Sherlock's struggle with his addictions. Um, so I think that, you know, maybe rather than trying to like, I don't know, give Jane, uh, sorry, give Joan a really intense arc this year, it, maybe it was wise to have like a kind of a fallow season. What do you think? It's not a bad idea, but I think it, for me, it just ruined a lot of the momentum that mm-hmm. they had going into this season. Yeah. And that that disappoints me. Fair enough. Um, well, let's talk, talk about momentum. Oh, we didn't talk about last week, but The Night Manager has been continuing. And, I, and you were super on board with the premiere. Um, how have these last two been working for you? How's the momentum build been for you? Because it's only a six-episode season, so they're done. They're halfway done. They are halfway done. Uh, I really enjoyed episode two a whole lot, which is more Roper-centric. And then we get uh, Jonathan's recruitment and his uh, infiltration of Roper's organization in Spain. Uh, The big reason why I liked episode two a lot, though, was that Olivia Colman just kills it 
in episode two. She's phenomenal in episode two where she's like telling him everything that he's going to have to do as like his last get out of get out of this card basically so good so powerful she's so great i can't say enough nice things about her performance in episode two and then so this week's episode was very much um setting up uh jonathan to get into his uh get into roper's organization and i thought it went all right um i wasn't like really deeply invested in this episode up until about the last 10 15 minutes when Roper is basically forcing Corky out to put Jonathan in place. And I just went, holy shit, shit. Jonathan is going to get killed by Corky or Corky's going to try <laughs> to kill. I was, I'm like, I was kind of like half paying attention. And I came back in for like the last 15 minutes with a lot of attention. And I'm glad I did because it was just like, oh man, Corky's being forced out of this shell company. That is not going to go well. This is great. Because this is a guy who's already not particularly happy with Jonathan's presence. And now there's even more of a reason for him not to be happy with Jonathan's presence. So I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying Hugh Laurie and Tom Hiddleston a lot like I was in the pilot uh, premiere. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to these last three episodes. Are you feeling a little bit more invested, involved, interested in what the Night Manager is selling? Or are you ready to check out? Did you see what I did there with my hotel punish? <laughs> yeah, I did. Nailed and I, it. I appreciated it, yes. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, I'm enjoying it more. It helps that we don't have the uh, woman who dies to motivate things in these episodes. Yes. Yeah. Um, but now can you see what I, why I was like stoked for Tom Hollander to be in this? He, he, of course, yeah, no, Corcoran. he's so good. He's so good, yeah. Now, have you seen uh, the, in? was it In the Loop? No, I haven't. Oh, so fun! You should you should watch it. It's a like a ninety minute movie, uh, based on a British uh, comedy series by Armando Iannucci, um, The Thick of It, and he plays a like a a mid level politician who gets swept up in, in things and ends up in D.C. in the middle in the the center of like this. Are we gonna declare as like NATO or like the U.S. and England and gonna declare war in the, the Middle East and everything? And it's very very fun. It's very very different character, but it's a very uh, entertaining performance from him as well as many other people. It's a fantastic cast. But I'm getting I'm digressing because um, I thought this was was fun. I thought it was solid. The way that the show kind of uses jumps around in time every now and again. Yeah. Um, I think is working well. Um, is kind of left me a little off-footed when I was watching it mid-arts and crafts, <laughs> but uh, that's on me, sure, not on I it. Sure, I can only imagine. <laughs> you look down to, like, you know, put some glue on a, I don't know, Star Trek Voyager thing, and then look back up and like, wait a second, time period. Um, I was having trouble with that with, actually, uh, Fear the Walking Dead a little bit as well, where I kept wondering if I was in a dream sequence or a flashback, or no, the one character is in a completely different part of the world. Um, so, yeah, anyways, that's a me thing, not a show thing. Uh, I am more invested. I like the, the the stuff with the kid, with Danny, I think is good. The yeah. the relationship with the girlfriend or wife. Um, I think I thought all of that, you know, that's getting more interesting as, as opposed to less as we go, which is, uh, you know, something I appreciate. Her, like, spying on her husband a little bit and him catching, like, that dynamic. As long as they don't just go to, like, the, um, they can't deny their attraction place, then I think that's more interesting, what they're doing, than at least when, what they're doing before. And, uh, yeah, I look, uh, I, I, I look forward to finishing it and seeing 
what all they can bring together. I've yet to be really like bowled over by Hugh Laurie like everybody else has, but maybe that's just because I really, really respect him as an actor and have since like I was a kid watching Fry and Laurie, or sure. he's amazing on Blackadder, or he's really good on House. So like for me, this isn't a new level for him. This is not yeah. career best for him. The way that I've heard other people say, like I keep waiting to feel what other people are feeling from his performance. But I mean, I think it's good. I think it's really good. I think he's really good. But um, hopefully that'll click in for me by the end of the 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 run. But I, I'm certainly um, more positive on Hiddleston's performance than I was after just the first episode. So at least there's that. Yeah, no, that's great. And I agree with you about Laurie's stuff. I mean, I'm the same way in that I'm, I've am i been very familiar with Laurie's career by and large, uh, either through, like, going back and watching stuff when House was starting, going like, who is this guy and where the hell did he come from? And But then also realizing, oh, I've seen this guy in, like, 80 different things. And so I'm familiar with these kind of terms from him. And I think it's just, th- I think a lot of where this praise for him is coming from is in no small part because of he and Hedleston just have a lot of chemistry with one another and I think that's helping both of them a lot and I think that may be where some of this praise for him is really stemming from is that Hedleston's really underplaying things which is allowing Laurie to go a little like broader in interesting ways not in negative broad ways uh, so there's a really good give and take between the two of them that I'm really enjoying. And I think that's what's helping the notices for Laurie's performance. Yeah. Well, and I think also a lot of people don't give comedy performances the credit they deserve. Uh, because when I think about Hugh Laurie, he's so, he's so fantastic on something like, um, uh, Jason Wooster, um, or on Blackadder playing complete dullards well i mean especially blackadder i guess he's not a complete dullard on on jason wooster but but on blackadder he's playing an utter imbecile and believably and doing a fantastic job and then you watch him on veep where he's playing one of the smartest guys in the room absolutely believably doing a great job and same thing in house where he just like intellect just kind of seeps off of his performance there are not many actors who can do both of those really, really well. And so I, I think also some of it is, you know, maybe this is just my my bias, you know, having reviewed Veep for several seasons and enjoying him last season and this season, and also having reviewed Blackadder and really enjoying him there. So maybe we've just spent more time thinking about him as a, you know, really tremendous actor because of the, t- the thought I put into those two shows in order to review them for the AV Club. But um but yeah, I think there's that element as well. Can you think of any other actors who can both absolutely believably play dumb and really smart? I mean, another one is, you know, Blackadder, Rowan Atkinson does that with yeah. Bean. And, but, but I mean, like, there aren't, I, don't, I can't really think of very many. Yeah, now that you're asking, I'm trying to think of some. And maybe next week I'll have an answer to that question. Yeah, listeners, or throw them out. Can, like, toss it out. Like, yeah. people reply to us on Twitter or Facebook. In comment section, let us know if who else plays plays dumb really smartly and plays smart really well. Yeah, because I think, and I actually think playing dumb really well is an underappreciated skill set. But then yes. most of the people that I think of as being like really great as characters who are dumb, who you have to be smart to do that, don't necessarily also get cast as the other thing and get the opportunity to show that they can do the other yeah, thing. That's or very true. Aren't necessarily as good at the other thing because yeah. it. it me being interested in watching someone thinking 
that, that, that's difficult. So it takes a certain je ne sais quoi for, for that to really work. Anyways, I'm getting distracted. Let's move on to our next show, shall we? And that's The Path, Refugees. Uh, this, I really appreciated this episode. I really like this episode. It got one of, I think it's one of the best ones they've done. And everything came to a head in a way I did not expect. I mean, I think we have to start with that scene with Silas. Like, I see you, Cal. I always have dot, dot, dot. You're an alcoholic salesman just like your father. Damn. Yeah, no, I, I, I was not expecting Silas to show up. I and was the fact honestly, that he's like been in yeah. like three scenes and, and that combined with, I think the performance for Silas is actually really good too to make him uh-huh. mysterious enough but he feels distinct enough while also being mysterious that like I really enjoy that performance and really engage with so the fact that he's in so few scenes makes him showing up just very electric to me. Yeah, no, it was it was very big and I think the fact that they hit it, they wanted us to think it was, uh, what's his name, the founder? Mm-hmm. And I was relieved that it wasn't because it was just like, oh, no, that's not a that's that's not a that's not a thing that you guys need to do. It's better off that he's not around. So having it be Silas was really good. And I the, the entire thing, Silas's appearance really played into the larger power plays that we're having in this episode. But I'm kind of like wary of now that Cal has to deal with a dead body. Um. Not necessarily looking forward to that. (laughs) (laughs) And the whole, well, where's Silas? uh, Pull collar, (laughs) nervously type of stuff. Um, But if I feel like the show through the past couple of episodes has earned enough goodwill to sort of make me patient for that, even though it's like one of my least favorite things is accidental murder. Um in both television and in real life. I'm not a fan of accidental murder <laughs> in real life either. You know, you just uh, got to get the right bathtub and the right dissolving thing. Right. You don't want a Breaking Bad situation. It's just it's exactly. a mess. Yeah. So, no. Um, but the other part that I really keyed in on was I loved, and I tweeted this, I loved, I loved, I loved Cal's power play by bringing in the lower rungs. Mm-hmm. I just went, you smart SOB. <laughs> so good. And if played into this idea that, I mean, even the two folks who were basically opposing Cal, the other two. Um, Bill folks, and Felicia. I, right. Um, were very. Don't want Silas there either. I mean, they're looking to consolidate their power and position within Myerism as much as Cal is. And that's just a really interesting dynamic that now Cal has eliminated a threat and positioned himself really well but he's played that community card and he can't keep playing that basically but i thought it was a really cool way of doing that and i think my only other question kate and since you review the show this is going to be a really key question how much are you looking forward to an episode in which it's just aaron paul walking for 250 miles if he's walking with Hawk, I'm super looking forward to that. Like I, I'm so down with the two of them being off on a 250 mile walk and just like just talking or or not talking and just like looking at stuff because this is a show that really embraces uh, shots of nature and other, and you know the cinematography on the show I think is really good. Not to mention you know the 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 fun that they could have with the score with that if they wanted to or with the soundtrack they've also had really great soundtrack pieces. So uh, like. 
I, I think that, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of potential for me with that. I don't, I'm sure you're being facetious, but I am super down with that. <laughs> I was being semi, semi, I was being semi sarcastic with it in no small part because I just went, I bet Aaron Paul could kill an entire episode where it's just him walking and it would be the best episode I watched all, best episode of TV I watched all year. <laughs> Absolutely. The way that I appreciate that so much of this season, um, turns in this episode which yes. is episode seven and we've got three episodes left so all the the shift in dynamic will be you know three episodes is the perfect amount to let everything come to a head and like everyone's in crisis now what's going to happen to end the season really strongly and allow them to they could fit they could wrap things up in three episodes they could just build an intensity for three episodes and ha- end on a cliffhanger now that we know that they're getting a season two you know who knows what they'll do but um but no we get the we get Sarah rising to a new place of authority and Which prominence. Which is very exciting. Absolutely. We get uh, Hawk and Ashley breaking up. We get, uh, and, and Hawk just kind of being lost and returning more to, you know, like coming to his parents for help. We get Cal and Eddie just like dropping all the BS and, you know, being like, I know Miranda Frank was you didn't sleep with Miranda Frank and all this stuff. We get Cal finding out about Allison and, and Eddie. We get um, just like so much gets turned. We, we get Silas obviously gets killed by Cal. So that throws the whole dynamic there, especially with Silas being such a key figure to Sarah and to the movement as a whole, let alone. Um, does that mean that Dr. Meyer is dead? Is that why he came? Because Meyer doesn't need him to look over him, you know, anymore. Um, the, the way that all of these different threads have, have just pivoted, some of them a little inorganically quickly, but but many of them, I think, very organically, has me excited for how the season's going to end. Right, and I think this point about all these little shifts that are happening within the episode, and that they're doing in episode 7 actually has me really excited. Because a lot of this is like episode 8, 9 stuff, I feel like, is yeah. within a 10-episode order. But So that they're doing it in episode 7 actually has me really, really excited for what they have planned for the next uh, three episodes. Uh, we, we talked a lot, of, we talked at length last week about our receptions of Ashley and how she interacted with Hawk uh, while they were in the compound. How did you feel about her breaking up with Hawk in this episode? I thought that it really worked. And because I, I think that they're just coming, they're coming from very different places in their family. And previously, she had a lot of stuff going on, but it was stable. And her mom was in, like, wasn't really handling things. Um, but it, there was, like, a stasis to it. And now her mom is more, they're, like, they don't have a place that they're staying. They don't know what they're going to do. She doesn't, she walks away from the only job offer, you know, that she's had. Um, so they're, they're a lot less stable. And she needs, she doesn't have the time. She can't help Hawk through what he's dealing with because her, her family situation has gotten even less stable than it was before. And so unless she, he was going to come with them, I think it makes sense that she says, I need to pull back. Just the other week, I was complimenting the OC for having characters not sacrifice everything for their teen love because it didn't feel super realistic to me. So this felt very realistic. And even just like Hawk saying you're the only thing that makes sense to me which the first time he says that and a commenter pointed this out at the av club so credit where it's due but the first time he says that it always oh, really sweet and romantic the second and third time he's, he says it and he doesn't have anything new to say he doesn't like build on that at all he doesn't know more than just like i like you you make sense you're cool um 
I think that that it, it becomes less compelling and more just like you just don't have anything else you're holding on to me and my family needs me I can't help you right now because I got to save them I, I just I don't know for me it, it really worked how did you feel about it were you were you upset with Ashley not as like I, I don't think we're as divided as we were last week on that I just felt like I understood like where it came throughout like the track of the episode given like the stuff happening with her family but it still kind of felt a little left fielded for me and I don't it yeah it just it felt really quick and it felt like a very quick turn yeah for her attitude about this to come about where it was very much like like you said I mean she's devoted a lot of time to trying to like lure him out type of thing basically and now she's just like shutting that down and it it just felt really it just felt really sudden given that scene that they had in that house that uh foreclosed house mm-hmm. and i just i felt like there was like a beat missing between that scene and the breakup scene basically and i maybe i missed a scene because i was like watching no. it while i was working no you didn't okay yeah well and where i feel that is not actually with them but is with her mom because in the previous episode, her mom's all like, you know, sitting around the table. Right, and... she's very into it. Yeah, and then all of a sudden in this episode, at the very start, she's like, ah, it was too creepy over at Hawk's house. And and if, if I, I feel like they're, the, the tone of those two episodes, like her connection with, you know, the other characters and what they were saying in, her, in the performance or the direction or the editing, somewhere in there, they had her too gung-ho in the previous episode and the start of this episode not gung-ho enough like i could like i really in, in my head and i put this in my review in my head when she goes to the dentist's office and they open the prayer room just like it's run away <laughs> it's just like straight right. up no that's exactly what that's i think that's where the transition is supposed to be and but. that makes sense but again i they, they weren't consistent enough with her arc in relation like her her tie with the uh, the movement as a whole or these other characters that and so when when her mom has that strong of a reaction she's like no you i can't have you be around these people at all like i get that but i need i think they could have prepped it better yeah yeah i can agree. i i agree with that totally yeah any other thoughts on the path no, still, like, really great. Excited for the last three episodes. Yeah. Well, let's move on then to our last episode of the week, and that's Underground, Black, and Blue. And while this one doesn't have the punch for me as the previous two episodes, and they only have ten episodes, right? So this is the penultimate yeah. episode? This is the penultimate episode. Next week's the finale. And if you haven't been watching, WGN's doing a marathon starting at 1 o'clock next Wednesday leading up to the finale. Nine hours. Program Do it. DVR. Yeah, turning your DVR. You can watch them later, but get get them saved. Absolutely. Um, I still uh, enjoy this episode quite a bit. Um, not all of it worked for me, and the like. It's like somebody just realized that Chris Maloney is in ridiculous shape. Is like we need to have more reasons for him to be shirtless because that continues to be the part of the show that I least am appreciating the, how they're handling the sexuality of that character. Um, but on the whole, I was I was pretty on board. Uh, how did you feel about this episode? I was not particularly bowled over by this episode, and mainly it was the storytelling device that they used to explore some of the characters' like psyches, like the hallucinogenic plant that just has like gotten boxed into this warehouse that they're in and caused all sorts of weird things to happen. I just went, this is not a great way for this to work, and I am not liking this. And mm. I ended up really kind of not liking... All the stuff with Rosalie in the warehouse, and which was a, 
odd thing to experience considering that Rosalie's storyline has basically been one of my favorite things about the show. But here I just went, this is not something I'm enjoying. And on the flip side, I ended up really enjoying everything with uh, John and Elizabeth this week. Because the, the, I had sex with this guy so we could keep this underground railroad station running came to a head this week. And it was really good. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed like how that played out. I enjoyed the basic, the self-righteous anger that he had about it. It was just like, do you know what I've done? I almost killed a man. And she's just like, dude, I slept with a man to keep this thing going. We're kind of on even territory here right now. You don't have the Trump card here. Yeah. Just because you have a penis. Yeah. It's not me. <laughs> yeah. That we have both not made sacrifices for, let's be clear here, your ideals. <laughs> yeah. Well, her ideals too. She shares them at this point. But, but right, yeah. Yeah. But... It's like, dude, you, you got, you beat up a guy. Like you were fighting a guy and you almost went Hulk on him and had to control your anger to not hurt him. I had to sleep with someone that I don't want. I I don't want to be around. I had to let someone inside of me feel like he owned me and controlled me. You don't win here. Yeah. So I really enjoyed, for the first time, really, a um, <clears throat> a John and Elizabeth storyline. So. Well, you're calling them by their names, so clearly they made yeah, an impact. Yeah. Well. Also, I have the Wikipedia page open. That helps. Which is helping a whole lot. Uh, so. You can usually tell when I care when I'm like more invested in characters because I'll or am reviewing it because I'll actually know their names as opposed right. to you know the the actors, which is a thing that I do a lot. I actually also really like the way that this came to a head with um with Boo and the gun. Yes, I, I really like that being what kind of table settled things. the argument for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was a really nice touch and how very. And quickly productive, protective, she's become of Elizabeth. And I thought that was really nice. And also just the fact that she thought he was a bad man. I mean, he's yelling at her. He's, like, being really aggressive towards her. And she's recognizing that as something that's not okay. Um, Based on this episode, how do you see this having a season two? I think there's a lot of things they could do. Okay. For a season two. Because, first of all, I mean, we've got one more episode. We haven't been back to the plantation. Yeah. So there's a lot that could be happening there that they could use to continue on in the second season. There is certainly, like, the opportunity could be that, like, they they get Boo. um, And, like, who knows what's going on with Kato, too. Maybe they go back and save Kato and get Boo and they get them out. And then one of the characters... I have to go back and save the rest, you know, like that could easily be a fuel for a second season or they could even just have it continue as a semi um, uh, anthology series and have like the, I mean, the title isn't Macon. The title is underground and lots of people could be using John Elizabeth's house, you know, like, so there are lots of ways that they could have like a handful of the characters continue working with the Underground Railroad and bring in a a lot of new characters and have new challenges every season if they wanted to. Or they could easily have Noah or or Rosalie um, decide that they need to go back and save the rest of their family and 
you know, have them get to freedom, get Boo to freedom, whatever, and then decide that they're that they need to go back and have that fuel another season. So, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, there's a lot they can do. Okay, that's good. You're feel I, you walking through that kind of helped me because I was feeling kind of I thought maybe an anthology type of an approach would I would have maybe been okay with. I don't I don't quite know yet. Uh, mm-hmm. I think a lot's going to hinge on the finale for me in that at least to answer that question but yeah i just based on this episode i was just like i'm not entirely sure what a second season of this looks like that's different enough from this season yeah i could see rosalie turning into a harriet tubman figure and it become becoming very much a character study of her as she gets more and more hardened as she gets more and more like because she's so um she's very tough um, mentally and and emotionally and psychologically, but I mean, she like we saw her first ever beating or whipping in the in the premiere, and she's very kind hearted. So to see her turn into more and more of a hardened like no, like numbers game, not save each person, but like save as many people as you can, kind of figure, which could happen if she continues to try to help slaves on the underground railroad, like something like that could be easily the way that you fuel the show because as far as i'm concerned like the 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 central character there's a few of them but i think rosalie really is the linchpin of a lot of this show for me yeah i would agree with that so i could certainly see her going back to save her her mom or or you know her her young brother or you know there's there are a lot of of ways i could see her investing in that or or getting to freedom but like not being able to stay you know like it she settles into a a life you know outside uh, you know outside of the slave states um but isn't she can't stop thinking about that and then that like that's the season two premiere and then she has to go back or something like that i don't know okay we'll see i think it's smart that they don't even try to go for a visual moment or go for like they they just go a completely different direction from what they did the last two episodes um i think that was really smart and i also like the you know i like that they she killed a child but like having putting blood on rosalie's hands and you know this idea that she didn't intend to attack the kid she's under the duress of the hallucinogenic plant but she did put herself in a situation where she was doping herself on a hallucinogenic plant as well as everybody else. Like she took yeah. that risk. And so it's not like, oh, I was against, you know, it's not like somebody else dosed her. She does right. have some culpability in it. And um, and as my, I really hope the kid's not dead, but um, that's a great, very convenient way to get uh, Chris Maloney out of things for the finale because he's got to deal with his kid and then get him back in things not for to catch slavers to catch slaves or to be a slave slave catcher but to get her to get these three people who right. hurt his son or killed his son like i that could make a much more personal stake so then if they want to have him be more of a heroic figure like he could help other slaves but he's got to get these three because they hurt his kid like there's a lot more that they could do with that if they want in in a, the finale or really in the next season yeah no i can see that that works really well for me yeah. Anything you particularly want to see next week? Um, no. Like I've been, I'm really bad at like anticipating that kind of thing now, and like building around expectations. I just want a really good finale after this. For me, what was kind of a lackluster penultimate episode. Do you do we go back to Megan in the finale, or do we leave the last thing we see there is Ernestine in the box? 
I feel like that's the last thing that we see this mm-hmm. season. Uh, just because there's been enough imagery from Macon that anything else that we go back to Macon for is going to be campaign related. And I'm not entirely sure that that's the crux of this story, at least at this point. Well, and I don't think that if you're going to go back for the campaign storyline, I don't think you top the fireworks and like the everybody right. going, yay you! Like, um, there's not enough time to get into that again. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, no, I don't think that there is either, which is why I'm thinking, based on them arriving at John and Elizabeth's house, that there are these two these two pairs of people are going to be our driving forces for the finale. Okay. Well, I look forward to that finale. Like I said, the, this week, not as strong as the previous two, but they, if they end strong, it still is a, will be, for me, one of the best, you know, like, few episode arcs of the season of tv so fingers crossed for a strong finale uh noel what was your week in drama oh, i'll give it to the path this week uh i enjoyed uh, all of the stuff that was happening with cal this week a whole lot and like like we discussed i'm very very excited about where this show is potentially could head uh for its last three episodes uh what about you what when your week in drama um i give a very very strong nod to the path but I got to give it to the Americans. So good. And also, like, honorable mention to um, The Good Wife for, I thought my husband didn't cheat. That was so good. Like, the laugh out loud moment of the week for me. Like, that yeah. that line could have won my week in comedy. <laughs> and just the, the mimic of the crying was also really, really solid. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the Americans for me. So now, if you show notes, you can find a post up for this episode at theteleverse.org where you can leave a comment to let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can email theteleverse at gmail.com and let us know in a lengthier setting what you think, maybe. Or though a comment, we're good. We're cool with long comments at the website, right? Yes. Um, you can also find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, and on the Google Play Music app. You can uh, rate and review us at least iTunes and Stitcher. I'm not sure about google play yet but you certainly you can subscribe on google play but you can't review or rate okay well you know at least there's that and uh you can c- certainly also find us on facebook and and uh start up a conversation there every now and again we get we, we don't get a lot of talk on facebook but every now and again we get a comment so do appreciate when we hear from people there and then we're both on twitter i am at the televerse and noel you are at noel rk and you can find my writing up at the v club right now i'm reviewing the path and veep and noel uh all the DC shows on the CW over at TV.com. Except for, you know, this week's Legends of Tomorrow. And, of course, next week, the Good Wife finale. And then there's one less, one fewer show for you to be reviewing. I'm sure you're very excited. I am very excited. Yes, <laughs> I am very excited. Maybe I'll pick up another one just just because I'll miss doing four shows a week. I don't think you will. I just am going to look into the future. I will not because I'm going to be like, oh, good. I have more time for packing things. (laughs) Kind of important when one is moving across the country. Um, Well, now we will take a break and come back with Dr. West Anthony from Musical Notations, uh, the Musical Notations podcast, I should say, to talk about The Equalizer. Listeners, enjoy this music. Enjoy this theme song. It's so beautifully 80s. We'll be right back after this. Would that be anything to do with the job you have going with Hal Winter? Al who? Come on, try again. You really have to learn to lie better, you know. Who are you? What do you want? I'm a friend of Hal Winter. Hal Winter's son is very worried that his father is into something over his head. You worried about that? No, no, no. 
Now, I imagine you're the kind of man who really wouldn't worry about anything like that. Unless, of course, there was uh, money involved. Uh, 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 uh. Don't touch the money until you talk. What do you want to know? I want to know what Hal Winter bought here in your store this morning. Um, I really would like uh, uh, to know. Well, all right, all right, all right. It's, it's, it's in the back. I'll have to get it, all right? Right, right. Oh, that looks very nice. Very nice. What is it? Come on, come on. You ever see one of these? Yeah. It's a security access card, isn't it? Exactly. Now, now, you give this to someone who knows what they're doing, and they could pluck the security code off almost any card. And what particular card is Hal Winter interested in? Don't be cheeky. Oh, what oh, card? All right, all right. Look, you don't have to be so pushy about it. They had to swipe the card off of someone Hal used to work with. the televerse this is kate kolzik joined as ever by noel kirkpatrick and this week on the dvd shelf noel i'm excited we're going back to the 80s the show that that we're going to be talking about is one that debuted um shortly after my birth so i did not watch it when it was on and it is a delicious slice of 80s action television i'm really looking forward to talking about it and i'm also really looking forward to being joined by our guest from uh the musical notations podcast over in the battleship retention fleet it's dr wes anthony west welcome to the podcast thank you very much it's a joy and a delight to be here so we're talking this week about the equalizer um and again as i said this came out the year i was born so i did not watch it um and i i had not heard of it there was the the, the it was adapted as a film yeah. Comparatively recently, didn't even hear about that when it happened. Oh. This, I was completely oblivious to this show, uh, and I had a lot of fun catching up with it. Uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun catching up with it. What made you want to talk about The Equalizer? Uh, it's a show that I have always really liked. Uh, I don't even know if there's any kind of a cult following for it, but I just I watched it faithfully when it debuted back in the, uh, the mid-1980s, and it also, it was a sort of a, a show that really reminded me of uh, another show that I loved, which was called uh, The Prisoner, which I, I believe you've talked about before. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody's talked about it. And yeah, The Equalizer, in a way, is kind of like a, a, like a, a weird cousin 
to to that show because it's sort of like it sort of posits the question of well what if number six was not sent to the village and instead he just decided to go around and atone for his sins as it were by doing good things for people because the the, uh, the creator of the show a guy named Michael Sloan he actually mentions in a commentary track on the the debut episode for the DVD he mentions that they shot an opening title sequence which is very reminiscent of the opening of The Prisoner. And I don't know if you've ever seen The Prisoner or not, but uh, every show starts out the same way with The Prisoner. You see Patrick McGowan uh, going to an office and he slams down a letter of uh, resignation and he's very upset about something. You don't know what, because all you can hear is the theme music. And then he's obviously he's leaving and then he gets kidnapped and taken away to the village. And Michael Sloan said that they had a, a similar opening for the equalizer for the opening credits in which he walks into control's office control is the name of or, or the, the, what they call his boss and slams down a letter of resignation and but instead of getting taken away to the village he hangs out in new york and does nice things for people <laughs> but they, they go with that uh, that intro somehow i didn't make that connection watching this but as soon as you said that i was like oh that makes so much sense and it adds such a fun context to the show as well because he's just you know our, our our hero the equalizer the titular equalizer is so like he's just so british um and so <laughs> thinking about it in that context is really because i was like thinking about why okay yes why we have this character but he doesn't have to be Brit. why is he british but that you know it just sort of adds like an international flair it lets him get away with saying stuff that in an american accent we probably wouldn't buy um but yeah adding that element of of more of the the prisoner element too like it makes so much sense to me and now it just adds an extra delightful level to the show yeah i think if they had gone with that original uh, opening title sequence it might have made it a little more obvious for everybody yeah well and maybe it's just that i'm i've been very tired this week and so i wasn't making clear parallels noel did you make that connection uh no i did not make a connection to the prisoner mostly when i was watching the actual opening credit sequence i just went wow i i forgot what new york was like before giuliani got rid of all the homeless people yeah, that's that's <laughs> one of the things that you can sort of appreciate if you watch this show is that it it really it, a lot of it was pretty much all shot on location in New York City. And yeah. this is what New York, I guess, what it looked like 30 years ago, uh, back when they they had uh, a 42nd Street and a red light district and and all yeah. the uh, the other stuff going on. There's an episode in the first season where you can see what the, the Jacob Javits Center looks like when it was under construction. It's uh, it's kind of a, a fascinating time capsule of the era and it also just um just from a like perspective it really sells the idea that new york is this place that really requires this man to be there to help since everything horrible is happening to these people in the opening credit sequence until he shows up to save them <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of saving of course it's required in a show like this but uh, you talk about those opening opening credits and i do enjoy the the credits for the show because again it does it's just so of its time uh, but even more than that for me of you know the of its time thing is being reminded like I was when we uh, when I talked to Columbo with Emily L. Stevens of oh yeah that's right shows used to not start with previously on but soon to be on showing clips from the episode that is yet to come uh which still throws me for a loop yeah, that's that's kind of a weird thing to do because I mean you're there, you're obviously sat down on your couch for the show, 
you, you don't need to know what's going to happen next. You just need to, you know, start rolling it. Or maybe it's a product of nobody had DVRs. And uh, and you probably weren't, you could, but you probably weren't going to tape it off of the TV. So they wanted to make sure that you stuck th- with it, maybe. Right. Yeah, that's that's how I've always read those those kind of sequences is here's a little tease of what we have in store for you. So please don't ter- change the channel. Yeah. yeah, I never change the channel. <laughs> <laughs> and well, I did keep a lot of the episodes. Yeah, well, and that's the the uh, the fun of these these older shows, just seeing sort of being reminded of ways in which the television landscape has changed and ways in which it is very much the same. And uh one of the ways in which, at least for me, it was very much the same. And this might just be a product of the particular episodes that I happened to watch. But it seems like almost every episode of The Equalizer feels the need to include uh, at least threatened rape. Is this just me? There were definitely quite a few episodes like that. Um, they they did get away from it sometimes, though. Mm-hmm. Every now and again, you get, you get a more uh, active... And, and usually the women are active participants in what's going on like they they there's some reason that they require other people's help other there's not like they're idiots or it's not like they are incapable of taking care of themselves it's there's the the writers make sure to work whoever needs help which at least again in the episodes i i watched almost always was women but they tend to work the characters into corners so that they have to call the equalizer like i'm thinking of an episode um that has the the corrupt cops in season one, where they they set it up where the the good cop has been framed by her partner for being dirty um, as part of like a lengthy process, so she can't just turn him in. She needs to equalize her, um, and so I, I appreciate that the show does actively go out of its way to to say why this you know problem can't be solved in the traditional way, why these people aren't handling their own issues. Yeah, and and to be fair, there there are plenty of guys who have to call on the equalizer as well. I mean, there's doesn't seem to be any threat of rape on their end of things, but mm-hmm. it's it is it, a lot of people all over New York uh, have all kinds of problems, and he's the only guy who can fix them. <laughs> well, and there was at least again in the episode I watched, it was a nice diversity of things. Like I, I enjoyed there was an episode um, where these a gang has taken over a street where there's a clinic, and right. there's a new doctor in town. Uh, yes which I, I enjoyed that episode. It's just like so over the top and so ridiculous, but it also so fun in the same way. And that's another one where there's a, it's a very, she's a very um, powerful, determined uh, female character, but they still find a way to physically intimidate her and have the guy like sniff her really creepily. Yeah. That was weird. Yeah. yeah that's, right. <laughs> like that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Yeah. That, that doctor character, she was played by uh Lynette McKee. Mm hmm. So I was a co-star in the Cotton Club like a year earlier, 1984. And that was that was one of the fun things about the show that you look at it now. I mean, back then you didn't think anything of it. But now you look back and there are so many guest appearances by people who have gone on to to do uh, much more substantial things. Uh, People who are a lot more well known now. And back then you just didn't think about it. Uh, Mm -hmm. I remember in it just in one episode in the first season. Uh, you could see Luis Guzman, David Allen Greer, uh, J.T. Walsh, um, oh, who else? Lori Petty, and Adam Ant. And in 1985, Adam Ant was the famous one. 
<laughs> you didn't know who the heck any of those other people were. We know now. Now you look at them and go, oh, wow, that's awesome. I had no idea they ever looked that young. But back in 1985, it's like, oh, I don't know about any of these people. Hey, Adam Ant. <laughs> Isn't, uh, aren't John Goodman and Steve Buscemi in the same episode? Yes, they're in the same episode. It's in, <laughs> um, I think it's in the second season. Yeah. And, and then the the composer for the, the series, uh, Stuart Copeland of The Police, he actually has an appearance in that same episode as a pickpocket. <laughs> yes, that is certainly part of the fun. Did you, Noel, did you have any favorites who popped up for you? Um, There weren't like a huge, I only managed to watch like a small handful of episodes. Uh, so, but I got to see, you know, Tony Shalhoub shows up um, in a really disturbing, not Tony Shalhoub role. And you go, oh, okay, so he does have range. And that's really exciting to see. Um, who else? Oh, Christian Slater showed up um, in just a really bizarre little episode <laughs> about uh, crack cocaine. A very a very special episode of The Equalizer. And it, it was very, very weird to see Christian Slater that young, to uh, West's point about going... I didn't realize these people were ever that young and I and Christian Slater's been around for like ever and I was just like wow I don't think I've seen him that young before and so that that was a that was really that was fun to see as well but um the only other person who stood out and she was in the um she was in the Tony Shalhoub episode and that was Patricia Clarkson and she was fantastic and also in to Kate's point also almost implied rape in with Patricia Clarkson's character as she's dragged off by one of Shalhoub's henchmen to potentially be raped uh, she she gets away but Yay! barely away. Yeah. that's also a recurring theme <laughs> right of these, of these you talk about I never knew that they were that young of course there's like a nine or ten year old Melissa Joan Hart in one of these as well and like and, and it's, as, as for playing against type, I don't know if it's really against type but I one of my favorites that popped up uh was Reginald Vell Johnson uh as as like a, a DJ or, or a musician guy because I'm just so used to seeing him always play cops so I was like oh that's kind of nice <laughs> he's on the other side of things he's getting threatened by a loan shark yay yeah I mean you can see in the third season you can see a young and thin Oliver Platt ah it's- it's kind of shocking. I don't I mean, think I've ever seen a thin Oliver Platt. Yeah, well, third season he's in. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. There's an episode where uh, with Christine Baranski uh, as the mother of Adam Horowitz of the Beastie Boys. <laughs> that's that's really in, weird. With a bad crowd. Oh it's goodness! A, Does she have state statement necklaces? No. Oh, no. Well, then they're doing it wrong. But that's that is delightful and super entertaining to me. Yeah. And and that's one of those things that I can really appreciate about a show like this, where even I was reflecting as I watched certain episodes, some of the episodes, again, like I said, campier than others. But usually there's at least one or two performances that were really grounded. So they have these ridiculous things happening around the characters. Um, but but th- there would still be some level of relatability. It, like once you buy into the reality of the world, I was like, you know, I was surprised. I wasn't necessarily expecting the the performances to be as solid as they were. I was more expecting people to just embrace the camp factor and go, you know, go to eleven. But I was I was actually pleasantly surprised with that. Yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with the New York location shooting, because then you mm-hmm. have access to New York actors. You have access yeah. to all these trained stage actors 
And that's not to say that actors over here in Los Angeles are all a bunch of goofballs, but a lot of them are. <laughs> I must say, I was very proud of myself. I recognized a young Toa Felcha by voice alone. I was in the other room when she came. I was like, is that Toa? And it was. I was like, oh, <laughs> thank you, New York Filming. Yeah, I really think that you get a different caliber of, of actors in over, over there in, in New York. It's kind of like the same thing that you have nowadays with the uh, with the Law & Order franchise. You know, all those shows were, are shot in New York, and you had all kinds of amazing guest appearances. Pretty much any actor who ever trod the boards on Broadway or off-Broadway or off-off-Broadway, you could see them in a Law & Order episode somewhere in the last 20 years. Yeah, right. and, and maybe they'd be in two or three, yeah. 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 I think the other thing to uh, think about when we're talking about, like, actors being grounded just not like the quality of the guest stars but just some of the even like some of the more side performers and supporting cast is the fact that this is a type of show that just doesn't exist anymore in the sense that you have one lead basically and then you can spend your budget basically on hiring guest actors and really good guest actors in a lot of cases who get to come in for one episode and then leave and make, try to make an impact and try to make make their mark. And it's just not a type of show that really exists anymore, which is this one lead type of show that then has to basically lives and dies in no small part on the quality of its guest actors. And I think that that really probably played in a lot in determining casting and that sort of thing is that you really have to make sure that your guest casting is on point when so much of the show is based on them responding to not only a plot but also responding to um responding to woodward that's true but also you know the thing is that having him as the central character like the only regular guy all the time it did unfortunately take its toll because around right. the third season uh, he had a massive heart attack yeah and he was actually laid out uh, for a couple of episodes. They they actually brought in Robert Mitchum uh, to, uh, to in a in a two part guest role to sort of take some of the burden off of Woodward. So they concocted a story where he, uh, you know, the Equalizer had been kidnapped by the KGB and and his son. <laughs> naturally, naturally. Yeah, and his son, who was a recurring character played right. by William Zabka, who people might remember as the uh, the bad guy, the blonde kid in in the uh, in the Karate Kid, you know, sweeps the yeah. leg. Uh, so he he finds uh, Robert Mitchum, who's an old uh, colleague uh, of the Equalizers, to to help find him and and rescue him. So you had that happen. That, that was his son, the violinist. Um, yes. This show, I, I've yet to see a series, and I, if I watched more Mozart in the Jungle, maybe this would happen. But based on the pilot I've seen of Mozart in the Jungle, and any other show I've seen, I've yet to see a show get an orchestra rehearsal right. <laughs> um, uh, but the way that that, like, the way that everyone in the pilot there as, as um, the conductor is calling out individuals on their performance, you, hey, I know you're phoning it, and everybody's like, oh, you. It's like, that would never, ever, ever happen. So it was actually, it worked out really well for me because it was like, immediately, oh, this is the reality of this show. This is not our world. This is not a world that uh, exists in reality because no rehearsal would ever be run like that. Uh, that person would never be hired again or those musicians would never be hired again. Um it was just an entertaining introduction to the world for me. But, uh, in all fairness, you're the only one of us who's going to know that. Oh, of course. Yeah. 
probably like I'm probably the only person I in the world who's ever watched the pilot of the Equalizer and thought, you know what really stood out to me? That orchestra rehearsal. That's the thing, though, that, that happens with everybody has a field of expertise. And then they, they'll and at one time or another, they will see that field portrayed in movies or on television and go, that is not even close. Mm-hmm. That, that, and unfortunately, you know, it can kind of blow it for, for those people. And then everybody else is totally oblivious. They're like, I, I don't know what you're so upset about. <laughs> it's, it's, it's good times. You know, you have to be able to, to move past that. Uh, I would say, or else, or just, you just don't watch the show. But fortunately for The Equalizer, because I'm sure The Equalizer cares what I think, um, that was, it's a minor thing in, in just the pilot. It doesn't really come back in a big way. But yeah, having that that son figure, there's only a handful of recurring figures. And and like you say, you know, it's not just that having a show ba- like with so many guest stars doesn't exist. Having a show with a structure doesn't exist anymore because there are a handful of shows that have like a couple characters that recur but no set location so like the x-files or supernatural where every character except for the central two is a guest star almost every week but they always center on a relationship rather than a persona a single the plot basically yeah and so the that difference in plot based storytelling I think is very interesting. But also for me it was how much time every week is spent with the bad guys, like extended lengthy amounts of time, uh, more than even on, uh, on on Kojak, which had you know would would spend time with the, with the baddies, but um, usually use that time very specifically to develop plot and to kind of or to develop character with the baddies. At least, again, maybe it's just the episode I watched, but I thought it was really interesting the amount of time they give over to, like, minutia in the baddie of the week's life. Yeah, well, uh, part of that is, you know, television episodes were longer back then because they weren't cramming in as many commercials. So mm-hmm. you did have more time to do that. And also, I think that that just the quality of the writing, I, I think that's I think that's pretty apparent, at least compared to other shows of that era and i also i think it's that quality that brought in such a a high caliber of guest actors you know um but that's one of the things that really appealed to me about the equalizer in terms of its relationship to other shows of that time because in the 80s there were a lot of sort of violent crime shows and you had like uh the a-team and of course, there was Miami Vice, which was I mean, it was very uh, you know smooth and glossy, but it was still also very brutal and violent. And then you had another show. This is the one that really stuck out in my mind because it was such a perfect contrast. It was a show that was created by Stephen J. Cannell called Hunter. Have you ever heard of that show? Yeah, it's just it's an '80s cop show with Fred Dreyer, who was a former NFL linebacker or something like that. He, I know he played football, and it's a show where clearly. Stephen J. Cannell had just seen like uh, Sudden Impact, the most recent Dirty Harry movie of that time, and said, oh, this should be a TV show. And yoink, next thing you know, it's Hunter. Because that's all it is. It's a guy who just, he has a, a lame catchphrase, and he's incredibly brutal, and he's a cop who plays by his own rules, and he, you know, th- that that's all that show is. And in contrast, you know, yes, the, the Equalizer does have uh, its share of violence and, and its share of brutality. But I think that because of the the nature of the character itself and the actor who's playing him, I, Ed, I think Edward Woodward is such a, he's such a fine actor. And I think there's an elegance to this show that is missing from all these other eighties crime shows. And I think that's, 
the biggest thing that Edward Woodward brings to that. Uh, he's somebody that's, he's, he's a very compelling person to look at. Uh, he has a fantastic voice. And that, cause that's the other thing is there's all these other people they have. Yes. They, there's lots of guns and, and cars and, and whatnot. And you know, you have like a show like Knight Rider where there's this, you know, a guy with an indestructible talking car, but the equalizer, all it is, is just a, a guy with a, a bitchin' British accent and a Jaguar and a Walter PPK, more or less. That he doesn't even, like, want to use that much either is the other thing I, that I think is significant is that, yeah, there's elements of violence, but he really attempts to solve all of his problems that he encounters through the minimal amount of violence and action possible. So it's a lot of talking or threatening or don't do this or I'm really going to have to do this and you don't want me to do that type of thing. So he's relying a lot on like threat and confidence and that's a really compelling juxtaposition as you say to the more even the over-the-top violence of the A-Team or the glossy MTV cops violence of um, Miami Vice. Yeah and Woodward has such a commanding voice. Right, right. Absolutely. Like when he's just sticking his foot in the door to um, talk to this criminal that's uh, whose apartment is like causing problems for some cub reporter. And he's just like, he's just sheer command of will that you're just like, I would not mess with this guy <laughs> ever. And the guy behind the door has no idea what he's dealing with because he's looking at this kind of prim British guy with glasses on and you're you're, you're like, whatever you say, Steed. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's just the, the thing that really, uh, really set the Equalizer apart from all the other shows. And that's that's why it always stuck in my mind, uh, why I always liked it. I mean, again, you know, watching it now, I've been watching a mess of episodes, you know, in preparation for this discussion. And yes, uh, there are definitely some elements that have dated horribly, but the strength of the character and the caliber of all these, these guest appearance, uh, guest appearances, I think that still remains. Yeah. Well, we would be remiss, uh, Wes, if we had you on and didn't ask you about the music on the equalizer. So do you have any thoughts on the, the very eighties soundtrack and score for the equalizer? I'll tell you what, the music is the thing that made me watch the show in the first place. I yeah. hadn't, I hadn't heard of it. I had no idea who Edward Woodward was. Um, at that, even when I was watching the show, I had no idea that he was the star of that film, um, uh, The Wicker Man, in the early '70s. I didn't see that film until much later. I found out about the Equalizer because there was uh, it was a mention of it in a story, and I, I it must have been Rolling Stone that Stuart Copeland, the drummer for the Police, was going to be doing the music for a television series, and. Stuart Copeland has always been my favorite member of the police uh, because mo mostly because he's the only one who really seems to be having any fun. <laughs> well, Sting has fun. He just delays it for a long time. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, th thanks for putting that in my brain. Uh, You're welcome. <laughs> but yeah. And, and I've always liked his music is one of the things that if, if you're familiar with his solo work, um, cause like around 1980 or so, he put out an EP under the name of Clark Kent uh, and it's just like eight really fun, catchy, punchy songs. I mean, he really only has two tempos. It's, it's skanking and pogoing. Um, and one of the things that you'll, you'll notice right away if you listen to the, that solo stuff is how 
much he had an impact and an influence on the sound of the early police. He really was kind of instrumental to that because it sounds a lot like it. You know, when Sting went off and did solo stuff, didn't sound anything like the police. When Andy Summers did his solo albums or his work with Robert Fripp, didn't sound anything like the police. Stuart Copeland stuff sounds a lot like the police, especially then. And then a couple of years later, when he did the score for the Francis uh, Ford Coppola film, Rumblefish, uh, it also sounds very much like uh, police type music. And so I was always a fan of his. And then I heard that he was doing the music for the show. And I thought, well, I love Stuart Copeland, so I'm going to check out this show. <laughs> so that's what drew me in. And I, you know, I came for the, for the policeman. I, I stayed for Edward Woodward. And I, I like the music. It, it, that is another one of those things that is very, very much of its time because he's using a lot of sort of 80s, like Fairlight technology uh, to, to get all these uh, various uh, sounds because he's performing everything himself uh, for the most part. And uh, so it, it does sound very, very 80s. But it also, in terms of the, the way that his music sounds, not just the, 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 the way he writes it, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like other music of its time. He has very weird rhythms and very odd uh, melodies that, that seem to like jut out at odd angles, you know? So, so that's, that's one of the things that, that I also find very appealing. And it's, I think it's a, it's a catchy theme song. Uh, and it's it's great to be able to to hear a theme song at the the beginning of every episode. That's another thing that you don't get too often nowadays. Yeah. But um, but yeah, that's that's the thing that drew me in was the music, and and I like it. You can, I I think some of it is available, uh, maybe on the iTunes store or somewhere. But I have a CD of it somewhere around here. Hmm. Well, like you say, it's I enjoy the the iconic theme songs and the the, the approach to theme songs that used to be like the norm and and so every episode like you're not probably going to sit down and spend an entire weekend marathoning the equalizer unless you're doing a dvd shelf segment on it but it's just like if you were doing that then maybe it would get a little old after a while because it is such a forceful theme song but it's catchy and it, it really sets a tone and and like you said it's it is elements of it are very dated but it it is perfectly suited to this show so it, like if you had like a more modern or a more typical theme song for even an action show now like if you had the kind of theme song you have in i don't know, like agents of shield or something it would be so wrong it would make every part of the show just like it would not work it would just pop the bubble but instead you get just it's again it's of a time it's of a place and it all comes together in that in that delightfully 80s score yeah, the, the whole show, I think, just coalesces into a, a very pleasant sort of 80s stew. <laughs> well, we are at our time, so I think that's a perfect way to end it. Do you have any uh, final thoughts, West, on The Equalizer? Uh, it's just, uh, it's still a show that I adore very much. Uh, it may not be to everybody's taste, but I, I, I know the first season is available on Netflix, so you can check it out for yourself. Um and it's just it's just a fun show. I mean, yes, I mean, there's there's still a, a little a certain degree of brutality and violence to it. But, you know, that that was the Reagan 80s. What are you going to do? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Game of Thrones is on now. I just we watched somebody get eaten like a baby get eaten by dogs this week in Game of Thrones. Well, we didn't we implied it, but still, I think people can handle the equalizer. Wow. <laughs> yep. I, I had no idea that was going on on Game of Thrones. Holy yep. smokes. Yep. That's that's how we roll at HBO this uh, nowadays. Well, on that cheery topic, Wes, thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? 
Uh, well, uh, my podcast, A Musical Notation, is available on iTunes and on Stitcher. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. West Anthony, and you can follow my podcast on Notation Pod. Uh, you can also find the show at battleshippretension.com because I'm part of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. Thank you one more time, West, for coming on, and thank you everyone for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Televerse. Mm-hmm.